Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. And we're back from our month-long hiatus. In this episode, we're going to do a bit of catch-up. As our listeners will know, we weren't publishing during the month of May because we had to travel. And travel during a global pandemic is a bit of a stressful thing. And then we had to follow that up with a two-week-long quarantine period. Lots of things have happened in that time. And so uh, we're going to start, I guess, the discussion by relating some of our travel experience and by relating our attempt, uh, ultimately successful attempt, to get tested for COVID-19. Uh, but it was it did take a bit of time. Uh, so where were we? Where did we come from? <laughs> so we were in Pakistan specifically in the northeast city of Lahore. And we were we got there at the end of February, as we had mentioned in, in earlier episodes, and we've been hoping to leave as of mid-March, but the ticket that we got then was for May 7th. Yeah, because when we tried to get tickets originally in March, they were very expensive. And yeah, because... Uh, one-way ticket that we had taken from Toronto to Lahore for context was about 700 Canadian. And the prices that we were seeing in March were over 2,000 Canadian for one-way. And so then we decided we would book a ticket that was a little bit later. And yeah, initially it was supposed to leave on May 7th. And it was still more expensive than what, quite a bit more expensive than what you would pay almost double the price Mm -hmm. Uh, and then when may 7th came around or when it was going to come around that flight got cancelled yeah and um, i mean we shouldn't have been surprised i guess because pakistan had been cancelling international flights since i think march but i guess we were hoping that because it was a direct flight and because it was the the national airline, um, Pakistan International Airlines or PIA, that it would go ahead. But a week before, or about a week before the flight was supposed to leave, we called around to the airline and were told that it's canceled. And so then we were in a tough spot to try to figure out, okay, how do we get out? Yeah, and ultimately we the what happened is the Canadian Consular Services, they had been arranging flights for Canadian citizens who were in Pakistan. So we caught one of those. Yeah, and which ended up costing a bit of money, <laughs> quite a bit of money. It was more than three times what we had originally paid for our ticket to Pakistan. Yeah, so, but we decided we should leave. Um, we, we did need to kind of get out at that point. Not that we were in any immediate danger, but because of... Um, because we're pregnant, so we wanted to to keep up with our prenatal care. Yeah, and, you know, and it had been difficult to access prenatal care while we were there because of the restrictions and the lockdown that was underway. And so we ended up forking out the money that needed to be forked out to come. Uh, and it was a few days later than our original flight. And yeah, and that was a stressful experience of getting on that plane uh, actually, it had been stressful even prior because, you know, we related very quickly that, oh, we found out that the flight had been canceled. But it was 
difficult to ascertain whether it had been canceled or not. The airline didn't alert us. We just sort of learned from a family friend who was also who also had a flight, but an earlier flight that their uh, flight had been canceled, and they said that they'd learned this from you know checking with the airline. And we thought, well, okay, would well, they haven't told us that our flight is canceled? Maybe we should check as well. And we called, and at first they were like, no, 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 it's not canceled. And then you know we insisted, like, oh, are you sure? It's not canceled and you know this is the flight number like oh, okay actually yeah it's canceled and, <laughs> and then I was a bit confused and they were like yeah we'll send an email confirmation soon but they never did they yeah. never did yeah and then I you know like two days before the flight I was sending them emails to be like can you please confirm and eventually they, they did confirm I think the day before um, yeah so that was stressful yeah, and then not knowing quite when the Canadian Embassy would uh, or consular services would arrange a charter flight, that was stressful to to wait for that because usually what we'd been seeing was that about once a week or once every two weeks, the Canadian consular services would arrange flights from the three major cities in Pakistan, uh, Lahore, Islamabad, and Karachi. And so we were waiting for the email to tell us when the next one would be. And... I think the day that we were supposed to leave, which was May 7th, we'd gotten an email or the day before from the council services that there was a flight leaving on May 9th and that we couldn't book through the consulate, but we had to book through the airline office. And so then for about two days, we were trying to call the airlines to see if we could purchase a ticket or even just reserve a ticket but we kept being told that no actually that flight doesn't show up on their system and eventually we had to go to their physical office to purchase the ticket yeah which we also weren't told that we would have to do we just sort of did it or we learned from informal networks i guess that that would be the way to go and book that flight is we had to physically go in uh which we did and then we got the flight and we had to uh, pack everything in one day which wasn't that hard i mean yeah we were already in the mindset that we were gonna have to do that and then like say our goodbyes call around yeah and then we went to the airport and the airport it seemed like that was maybe one of the only flights that was leaving that day but despite that there was a delay in getting us onto the plane because i guess the protective equipment that the cabin crew were wearing that was some issues or um the temperature check thermometer that they use we our temperatures weren't checked before we were boarded even though i think some earlier consulate emails had given the impression that people who were displaying symptoms wouldn't be allowed onto the planes but there was no attempt to check us for symptoms really but we did have to wear a mask i think to to get on board yeah uh, everyone had to have a mask which everyone did have but yeah i was a little bit troubled by the fact that our temperatures weren't checked no one's were as far as i could tell and one thing that kind of struck me was that there were plenty of what would be considered at risk people on the flight Mm -hmm. uh, older people and and that's what i mean and there were also lots of young kids Mm -hmm. and so that combination uh, made me a bit wary because i sort of knew that okay there's a bunch of these kids they're not going to be sitting still 
uh, their children and they're not going to keep their masks on. And then there's these, you know, older people who are, uh, who have the potential, if one of these kids, for instance, has has the virus and is asymptomatic uh, or or not, because, I mean, some of these kids were going around and, you know, I don't know, they could be coughing for whatever reason, but there were people coughing. <laughs> and it was a 14-hour flight. And, you know, as much as we tried to keep our masks on, doing mealtimes at least, everyone's masks were off. And so that seemed... Like maybe it was defeating the purpose. Like you know, there's plenty of breathing happening during meal times. Um, I think generally the airline had tried to minimize how much contact would happen. Like there was no in-flight entertainment to like um, to do the pressing of uh, the touch screens. There weren't blankets handed out, which usually are in a long flight. And the attendants were or cabin crew were all dressed in personal protective equipment, I guess. Um, but like very like heavy duty. Stuff. Very heavy duty. Like more heavy duty than I've seen doctors here wear at the COVID assessment centers. I guess, but the, the flight attendants are at risk. Yeah, of course. Because they have to lean into people to ask them you know, what they want and such. And so that's a lot of close contact. Yeah, so I mean, and actually when I saw that, I mean, I, I, I think that's good, right? Like mm-hmm. obviously the more protected they are the better uh, the more protected we are in that case too but yeah so then you know you sit on a flight like that and at first i don't know what was sort of happening in your mind but at first i was quite anxious and then after a while i was just like whatever <laughs> like you know you just sort of give up like your mind is just like okay i could sit here for the next 14 hours and keep stressing out or i could just abandon that uh, thought circle of like oh no what if we get the virus what if what will that happen then and you know etc etc or you can just sort of be like okay if it happens it happens we'll figure it out (laughs) yeah there's there's certainly not much that you can do while you're in in an enclosed space with you know a couple hundred other people yeah Uh, one of the things i did though i mean i i say that i i gave up my anxiety (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I also refused to go to the washroom during that entire flight. I mean, I don't know if that's too much information, but (laughs) just, uh, I don't know. That's an intense sacrifice. Well, I just thought, you know, why risk it? And I I don't know, for some reason, and again, I don't know if this is too much information. Probably it happens to lots of people, most people, that under certain certain circumstances, your, your body just sort of regulates itself in a different way. So you just don't. Those some of those functions just don't need to be fulfilled. The body just, it knows that, okay, this isn't a good time to fill the bladder or whatever, and then it just doesn't. Or empty the bladder, rather. Right, empty the bladder, because I'm sure the bladder is filling, but I just didn't have yeah. a sense of it. Um, so then we... We landed in at Pearson, mm-hmm. and we were told, after like some uncertainty about why we weren't getting off as quickly that uh, the pilot came on the announcement system to say that the aviation authorities at Pearson weren't allowing us to disembark just yet because they didn't feel prepared or he just said we weren't allowed to disembark just yet. They hadn't given the go ahead. And so we were sitting in the plane that had landed with, you know, a lot of increasingly irate 
passengers and babies as well who are irate. Um, many people who just like, despite being told by cabin crew to keep being seated, of course, they were just standing in the aisles. Um, and so it seemed like it was an hour from when we landed to when we were allowed to disembark. Yeah, yeah, it was more than an hour. And, you know, I thought people were relatively well behaved. Yeah. I thought so. I mean, that was a difficult situation. We had no idea what was going on. And usually what happens, you know, in a situ- in a long flight, actually, it doesn't even have to be a long flight, but, you know, the plane lands, it comes to a stop and people are up and going after their luggage and trying to head out. Mm-hmm. And I felt like people were... Restrained? Were relatively restrained. Yeah, there were a few people who decided to stand up and sort of pace and look around to see maybe if they can go for their luggage or whatever. But uh, but eventually we did get off the flight. It took far too long, but we got off. But before we got off, we did see the cabin crew going around with their temperature detectors, seemingly at random, and then noting something down with their with their seat number. But it seemed kind of arbitrary, and it seemed like a very small minority of the passengers that were on board were being checked. And then there was nothing once we got actually off the plane into Pearson. There was no attempt to check symptoms. Yeah, that was actually troubling. Probably the most surreal part of it is like getting off at Pearson and there were a couple people standing on the sides of the tube that you come out of that's attached to the uh, the airplane. So you come out and there are a couple people standing on each side and handing out flyers with you know information about COVID-19. And they're also just sort of speaking very loudly, you know, to us that, oh, if you have symptoms, make sure you tell us. And it's like, okay, I mean, that's certainly one way to do it. Uh, but the other way, you know, maybe the, the proper way to do it is to test everybody. Yeah. And we didn't get any tests whatsoever. We didn't even get our temperatures checked. And that I really thought was a huge oversight. Uh, once again, you know, there's lots of at-risk people on this flight. And there's a chance that there were people who had the virus and could have passed it on to them. So instead of, you know, waiting until these uh, at-risk people or any anyone for that matter develops symptoms and, you know, has to be then rushed to hospital potentially, uh, instead of doing that, it would have been good to get a sense of things beforehand. Yeah. And it seemed like when we had gotten to where there's those kiosks for check-in, into passport control, I guess. Um, I'd overheard one of the workers being like, oh, this is not even that much, that many people. Because I, I think what probably happened was that the aviation authorities were freaked out that there's like, oh, a few hundred people coming right at once and they're not prepared. And so they made us wait for an hour, but then it wasn't that many of us. So they could have probably, and there was seemed like a good ratio of staff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they quite you know, feasibly could have tested if it, even if all they were doing was that, that temperature check, because even when, when we had landed in Pakistan at the end of February, that was one of the first things that happened that we, our temperatures were checked. That's right. Yeah. It was, and that was before the pandemic became this big global thing. Yeah. And then when we got to the attendant for the passport control, we were asked a series of questions about whether we have a place to quarantine 
for 14 days, uh, whether we have a way of getting things delivered to us there and that there's no one above the age of 65 living there or someone who has um, who's immunocompromised or other vulnerable people. And that, you know, I guess that was the agreement that uh, according to the Quarantine Act. Yeah, and so we, I guess we agreed to that and then they let us go, which was fine, I guess. But, uh, you know, I, so I have a friend who also traveled during the pandemic uh, from uh, Europe to Korea. And he had a very different experience um, upon landing, especially. You know, he, he sort of documented it all as he was going along. And it was very interesting to see, you know, he said it took three hours upon uh, getting out of the plane to getting out of the airport. For us, it was very straightforward. For us, it was, you know, I don't know how long it took, like a half hour. Yeah. Once we finally got off the plane. Yeah. For him, it, yeah, he said there, and they, they, there were seven different checks that he had to do, uh, you know, stops along the way. So when he landed on uh, at the airport, you know, that involved the airport authorities getting him to install an app on his phone mm. uh, that would uh, track his movements. Track his movements. And he, you know, he had to agree to sign on to the app and I guess check his temperature or register his temperature mm. every day. And then he was tested and then at the airport at the airport mm -hmm. and then they didn't let him go they took everyone from that flight to um a hostel uh not a hostel i guess but it was i think it was a facility that's often used for like youth camps mm -hmm. but they had requisitioned it for you know keeping travelers who who just come into korea so they gave everyone a room there they provided food and they kept everyone there until their test results came which was like, which which was in one day, mm -hmm. so in one day the results came, and uh, he tested positive, and so therefore they then arranged for him to be driven along with other people who had tested negative. Oh, sorry, did I say he was tested positive? Yeah. Sorry, I meant negative. Uh, no. So he, yeah, he, him and others people who tested negative were then driven to their homes, mm. and then they were required to stay at home for 14 days right. so very different from what we experienced and actually he also learned that someone because they had tested everyone on the flight that one person at least on that flight did test positive mm. the people who had been sitting near that person mm. were uh, then uh, called back and and told that they would need to get tested again to see if they would uh, did contract the virus during the flight that sounds very thorough. Yes, very thorough and very different from arriving at Pearson. Yeah. Um, okay, so we came and we settled in, I guess. Yeah, in Waterloo. Waterloo, that's where I'm originally from. So I came back to my childhood home <laughs> because we don't have an apartment at the moment. Yeah, and we can't quarantine with my parents because they're older and immunocompromised. And so in... The Waterloo home, I guess we, you know, we were told that we can't go out for walks. And so we strictly have to be in the house at most into the backyard. But the next day, starting the next day, we arrived on May 9th. Starting about May 10th, I started feeling a bit like sore throat, coughing, occasional headaches. And you were feeling 
off as well. Yeah, yeah. I what I guess I was feeling like extreme tiredness from the next day onward, and I sort of just said, well, hopefully it's jet lag. But then I I also developed other symptoms like、uh, a sore throat, and、uh, I didn't cough, and I didn't have a fever or a headache. Yeah, I guess my main thing was it wasn't that. That many symptoms. It was just extreme tiredness, which is a symptom of COVID nineteen.、Uh, and I had a sore throat, but you had other symptoms as well. Yeah, I think the, the dry cough, especially at night, was the one that sort of freaked us out. Yeah. And so I think a couple of days later, on one occasion that、uh, woken up coughing in the middle of the night, we said, "Okay, let's just call telehealth to see." Um, no, actually, we said okay. Let's do the online assessment because that's what we were told.、Um, you do that first. So we did the online assessment. The online assessment told me that I should call Telehealth Ontario, and so at like three four a.m., we called Telehealth.、Uh, we were on hold for a while, even though it was the middle of the night, and then someone took down my information and said that they would that a nurse would call back. That afternoon or the following afternoon, it wasn't clear what the instruction was, and so then we waited. So we didn't hear back that day. We had a call the next day from a nurse. She asked the same questions about symptoms, and she said that you know I may be eligible to be tested. She gave me an,、uh, the number for the Waterloo Region Public Health people, and so I called them, and they they took down my information. And they said somebody would call, but they don't know when to ask again about about my symptoms, and then see if they might be able to refer me to a COVID assessment testing center. But that I might still need a doctor's referral on top of all these phone calls, and so that we waited. Yeah, yeah, we just waited, and then. During that waiting period of of that several days, we also received a call.、Uh, each of us received a call from, you know, someone checking in about whether we had been maintaining the quarantine. I think it was from the federal public health. Yeah, and they had just asked us like very generic questions, like, "Oh, are you staying indoors? Okay." And no question was about whether we had symptoms. I was waiting for. A question like that, but then it just sort of got to the end, and she was like, "Okay, great, thanks, bye." <laughs> yeah, it seemed like she was more concerned about whether how we were getting our groceries than、mm-hmm. whether we had symptoms. Right. And so, as we approached well, the end of our two-week quarantine, and we still hadn't heard back about whether we could get tested, but we were concerned about potentially having symptoms, we were starting to worry because. I had booked an appointment, or like my prenatal appointments, for the week after our quarantine ended. But then I thought, okay, maybe I'll have to reschedule those if I still have symptoms. And so I called my midwife to to reschedule, and she said that I would be being pregnant, having recently traveled, and showing some symptoms. I'm、uh, very high risk for、uh, for COVID, and so I definitely should get tested. I tried to tell her. <laughs> Really tried. Yeah, we feel the same way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so she suggested that I Google instead of like telehealth route, I just Google testing COVID testing centers in Waterloo, and so that's what I did. 
from there, there was the first website that popped up was, I guess, the Waterloo Region Public Health. And so I did another online assessment, which then said that I need a doctor's referral to be able to be tested. And the online system, I guess, asked if I wanted a doctor to reach out to me if I didn't have one. And so I said yes. And within an hour from filling out that form, I received a call from a doctor and she asked some questions and she also said that because of the travel and the pregnancy and the symptoms, I'm very high risk and I should get tested. Uh, But that even though Omer traveled with me, because he's part of the same household, they're only doing one test per household. Yeah, and I and they were going under the assumption that if you get tested and test positive, then they'll assume that I am also positive. Yeah. And so then, but she, even though she was a doctor, she couldn't sort of, uh, so there was still yet another step. So she, when she hung up, she said that somebody would call me from the testing center itself to book the appointment for the test. And so an hour or so after her call, somebody called from the testing center to book uh, the test for the following day, which was last week, Friday. And today is Saturday, May 30th. Uh, So yeah, I guess you got tested, yeah, a week and a day ago. And by that time, our symptoms had gone away. (laughs) And and just to clarify, I don't think we have said that. The the symptoms that we did have were relatively mild. Mm -hmm. So we didn't end up having, like even Sadia, you had a bit of a slight fever, but it was not the kind that some people have. Yeah, nothing discernible. Or like, you know, nothing that you feel like, okay, I'm actually feeling a temperature. We didn't have a, a, a thermometer. Thermometer, but, but yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't like, you know, 103 degrees or something. Yeah. So, I mean, we were happy that the symptoms we did have were not very bad. I guess we're not at a, a at an age that we would be especially at risk, but we're also not that young. We're not yeah. in our 20s or something anymore. So... The night before the test, I guess I was looking at videos of how that's usually conducted. And it seemed from the videos uh, a little bit harrowing um, because in the videos it showed that the swab goes up the nose and so far into the nasal cavity that's almost to the ear would seem kind of distressing. But I said, okay, well, I have to go through with it anyways. And so the next day we drove out to the testing center, which was about like a five, six minute drive from here. Mm-hmm. And we were told that we would wait in the car and the doctor would call from inside. They would ask me some questions about you know, medical history and such. And then they would uh, invite me to come in. And when I'd gone up to the door, I saw actually right before, right in front of me, there was a older couple that had walked, uh, walked up to the door and a uh, nurse or receptionist with the, uh, you know, protective gear had come out with a clipboard and she asked them if their names were on, uh, what their names were and whether they were on the list and they weren't. And so she told the couple that, you know, they can't get tested unless they've been referred to the testing center by a doctor. And the couple seemed a bit confused because I guess, you know, it would seem like if you want to get tested, you should be able to get tested. And this is no longer the case, but until... I think last week, a doctor's referral was necessary to get 
COVID testing. Yeah, so on that Sunday, on the on May 24th, the provincial government announced that it would no longer have restrictions on, on people trying to get tested, So, which is really good. Though there have still been some stories, especially from Toronto, of people trying to go and get tested and, and not being able to do so because the lab that they went to or the testing facility they went to uh, wasn't able to receive them. It's weird because, I mean, although Ford made that announcement, like in subsequent newspaper reports, I've read that there's still some conditions. Like you can't, like not anybody who wants to get tested can be tested. You have to have, in one report I read that you have to have at least one symptom or are convinced that you came into contact with someone who is COVID positive. So there's still some you know, barriers. Yeah, and also uh, we haven't said what your test result was. Oh, yes. So um, the doctor had asked when I'd gone in mm-hmm. um, about how I'm doing, uh, etc. And then he took my temperature, took my blood pressure, listened to my heartbeat. And then the test was actually not as awful as I was expecting it to be. It was just a, like a swab in my throat that wasn't too too uncomfortable and then the same swab up each of my nostrils not too too bad um and then he said that uh the test was also available like four to five days after the test is done but if if i was positive then i would hear back sooner like within a couple of days and so i was uh, checking online and i think by so the test happened on friday morning and by Saturday afternoon, I checked and I tested negative. No, I think it was Sunday. Sunday afternoon, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So by Sunday afternoon, when I checked online, yeah. I saw that it was tested negative. Yeah. So we we're negative, I guess, um, which is good. And actually, we don't know if we had the virus or not. Yeah. Uh, because it was the uh, it wasn't like an antibody test. And the doctor himself had said that if your symptoms go down or no longer there that can lead to a false negative and that the, the test itself is about like 85% accuracy, but that, yeah, it's possible for it to not detect. Yeah, so, but then since then, our symptoms haven't returned. So, yeah, I, we don't know whether we had the coronavirus. We tested negative, or Sadia tested negative, which means that I'm assumed to not be positive. And that's the system we're working with. Yeah. But at least one good thing that's different now is that the restrictions have been lifted on trying to get tested, or some of them, most of them, I hope. And I do know that the testing rates have gone up Mm -hmm. as people are going to get tested, which was one of the worries that, you know, even if the provincial government gets rid rid of the restrictions that people, it's still voluntary, right? You still have to choose to go. So yeah. so it's good people are going to get tested. Yeah, and I heard that, well, it's a delayed reaction, certainly, but uh, the provincial government's also trying to send mobile testing assessment centers to neighborhoods and workplaces where there seem to be worries of being hotspots. And so, you know, that might help to increase testing and get a more accurate picture of what's going on. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Uh, And then since we've been back, uh, there was that attempt to ease the lockdown that had been underway. 
and I guess everyone knows what happened with that, especially as it uh, played out in, in Trinity Bellwoods, that infamous uh, affair. Trinity Bellwoods Gate. I think that's the... Is, can I coin that phrase? Sure. I mean, for those who don't, perhaps don't know, so Trinity Bellwoods is a park in Toronto. It's a public park. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And what day was that? What day was the... Uh, so... This was last Saturday that the Trinity Bellwoods Park was was filled with crowds, and that day Toronto had reopened 850 park amenities, including picnic shelters, soccer and multi-use outdoor fields, baseball diamonds, and basketball courts. After more than two months of closure, yeah, and I, probably people, most people have seen the photographs of the estimated 10,000 people who were assembled at uh, Trinity Bellwoods. So that was worrying that that happened. And yeah, there's been lots of uh, discussion about that. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, much of the discussion has been about shaming people who were there and chastising them for being selfish and not following guidelines. And, you know, Ford expressed disappointment. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if uh, just making making people feel bad is is a good public health response. Yeah, especially when you have something that happens at that mass level, you know, it means that probably it's not something that's that can be managed by just saying to people that they should make better choices. It's a it's a collective failure or it's a it's a symptom of collective failure, I guess, when you have 10,000 people assemble at a at a park. Yeah, because I guess, you know, at an individual level, we can say that okay, we uh you know, how bad, how irresponsible of them, they should feel bad. And if they just feel badly enough, they're not going to do it, uh, do something like this again. But at the level of the state and the level of policy, there has to be something more. And actually, uh, we might have mentioned this when we were talking about Kerala in an earlier uh, episode, but they're one of the tenants of their public health response to COVID has been to not only not shame people for traveling or for you know violating quarantine but actually in at least one case to help people who did violate quarantine to deal with the social stigma that they face as a result but was it that yeah so there was a couple who returned from italy and they had been the source of the spread of the virus in kerala in india mm-hmm or one of the major sources of the spread they had been. But this was before, I think, the lockdown had been uh, initiated. Oh, maybe. But I think they didn't, they still went around after coming back when they were supposed to stay home. Right. Yeah, and they had been, and they and their family had been receiving quite a bit of public shaming. And public officials had actually pushed back against that. And so here in Canada, you know, public officials are leading were leading the way in engaging in the public shaming when uh, actually it's that incident and the broader reality that we're facing in this province is, uh, you know, if anything, it's their responsibility. It's, it's as a result of their actions or inactions and their inability to manage the situation that that's happened. Yeah. Anyway, I, I guess, yeah, I would say overall, when we were not here, the outlook for Canada and like the ma- the way the crisis was being management managed in Canada seemed better now that we're here and especially our particular experience like made me think that okay this is not being handled that well 
And then, of course, Trinity Bellwoods Gate, uh, I think, alerted a lot of people to the fact that, okay, things are not going so well. So thanks very much for tuning in to this return episode of Oats for Breakfast. We're going to continue publishing now as we usually do on a weekly basis. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oats for breakfast and becoming a patron. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email contact at oatspodcast.com. See you next time. Bye.